Once upon a time, in the depths of human history, a silent enemy emerged. It crept from the shadows, infiltrating communities, and left devastation in its wake. This enemy had no face, no discernible form, but its impacts was felt far and wide. This was the beginning of the HIV-AIDS epidemic, a chapter that forever changed the course of our world. Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome. It's mysterious, it's deadly, and it's baffling medical science. A mystery disease known as the gay plague. Federal health officials say as many as one million Americans may have been infected with the AIDS virus. Ailment is called AIDS, which stands for Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome. Picture it. The 1980s, a time when the world was on the cusp of a new era. Amidst excitement and progress, whispers of a mysterious illness began to circulate. People fell ill weakened by an unknown foe, fear gripped communities as they struggled to comprehend what was unfolding before their very eyes. As the epidemic spread, scientists and medical professionals raced against the clock to unravel its mysteries. It was a battle fought on many fronts, seeking answers, treatments, and hope. And through the tireless efforts of researchers, the cause was finally identified, the human immunodeficiency virus better known as HIV. But the story doesn't end there. It was only the beginning. The battle against HIV-AIDS became a collective mission uniting governments, organizations, and individuals from all walks of life. Awareness campaigns were launched, education became a weapon, and compassion ignited a global movement. With each passing year, breakthroughs in medical research brought forth powerful antiretroviral therapies, transforming HIV from a death sentence to a manageable chronic condition. Hope shimmered on the horizon, even as the shadows of stigma and discrimination continued to linger. Fast forward today, and we find ourselves in a pivotal moment. The fight against HIV-AIDS has come a long way, but the battle is far from over. Sub-Saharan Africa, a region that has borne the blunt of this epidemic, continues to face significant challenges. Here, young women and adolescent girls find themselves at the center of a storm. Poverty, gender inequality, limited access to education, lack of access to sexual and reproductive health education, and the haunting specter of gender-based violence are the chief drivers of the epidemic for this demographic. Despite the gains we've made globally, these young women, comprising just 10% of the population, account for one in four new HIV infections in Sub-Saharan Africa. It's a stark reminder that our battle is not yet won and the work is far from complete. All of these threaten the world's ability to achieve global AIDS control and the Sustainable Development Goals 3, 4, and 5 by the year 2030. But what if we consider that we're not defined by our past, but our actions in the present? We stand on the precipice of change, armed with knowledge, empathy, and an unwavering determination to reshape the narrative. Stay with us in this episode as we unravel the complexities and explore innovative solutions that address the underlying factors driving the HIV-AIDS epidemic. My name is Gordon, your host for this episode, along with my co-host Bindra. And up next, we interview someone 
who's at the cutting edge of leading HIV AIDS interventions and initiatives in Sub-Saharan Africa. Kemi is a lawyer, communications, and public relations and policy advocacy strategist. Her advocacy and policy work focuses keenly on gender and development, HIV AIDS, and access to education for young women and girls. For more than a decade, Kemi has been active in the field of communications and development, working collaboratively with the media, government, policymakers, CSOs, intergovernmental organizations, and communities to advance meaningful change, particularly for people living with HIV and young women and girls. She has a proven record in identifying key advocacy and policy priorities and in the development and implementation of targeted advocacy and communication strategies. Kemi is a member of the prestigious UK Shevening Scholarship alumni and international certified speaker, coach, and trainer with the John Maxwell Leadership Team and a TEDx speaker. Kemi, welcome to the Public Health Insight Podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. And we are excited for the topic that we'll be discussing today. But before we do that, we're going to start by visualizing your career that you've had so far as if it was a Google Maps. So I know you've been traveling. I know you've done all that. So I'm guessing you have your GPS on your phone right now, ready to plug in some coordinates. You got it ready? (laughs) Yes, I am. You got it ready. Okay. So you're a lawyer with a master's level training in communications and public relations, and most recently acquiring your master's of arts in gender and international development. But early in your career, you were an assistant news producer. So I feel like there's a story there to be told. So what was that journey like to get to that point? Was it filled with twists, turns, detours, traffic, which you experienced on your way to the podcast? What was that journey about? (laughs) Okay, thank you so much, Gordon. I would say my journey into what I do now is really an interesting one, but it's Mm. also deeply rooted in my purpose and my calling, if I may say so. So, yes, I went to school to study law. I am a lawyer. I got Mm. called to the bar. But I knew that I didn't want to practice law, like in the sense of going to court. Mm. I wanted to be able to use that knowledge more in the humanitarian and development space. Another passion of mine is also the ability to use like the media platform. I do like to communicate, express opinions and insights in terms of working with the tools I have to get my voice out there, not for me, but on behalf of those who are not able to have the platforms that I have to be able to share it, particularly to drive change and make a difference. So for me, my voice is one of my most powerful tools and to be able to use that to whether advocate, persuade, negotiate, influence, I try to use that. So when I did my first master's after, after I was done with law, I walked a bit in the media house, mm-hmm. got a lot of information. I did practice a bit though for just for a short time. And so I knew I didn't want to do like law. I didn't want to go to court. Uh, But then again, with the work I do, the knowledge of the law comes in very handy because I'll talk a bit about that because I do a lot of work around policy advocacy and you do have an upper hand um, if you have a legal background than to be able to look at policies at all. 
but going back to how I found myself in this space. So I remember when I did my master's in communications and public relations, I was in Malaysia at the time and I had done a presentation in class on behalf of my group titled The Power of Persuasion, to be able to use persuasion to get people to change their perspectives or perception or attitudes. And I remember that by the time I did finish my presentation, my lecturer at the time sent me an email, like later at night, and she was saying, you know, there was just something very powerful about your presentation mm -hmm. and it was very convincing. Have you thought about what you want to do with your life in the future? And I said, I, I know I want to work in development. I want to be a humanitarian. I, I just want to be able to change lives. That's what I want to do. She actually made the comments and she said, you sounded very Martin Luther King. Yes. <laughs> like, that <laughs> That's was a how, good compliment. How, yeah, yeah. I was like, I think it just, it switched on something because mm. it's, like, it's, it's good that someone recognizes the gifts that I have. And so she said, go think about something you'd like to make a difference in while you're here doing your master's and I would throw my weight behind it and support you. So I, I went back, I thought about it. And then she called me the day after and she said, have you thought about something? I said, yeah, I'm just thinking of maybe something around women and girls and young people. She asked me, have you thought about HIV AIDS, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa? I said, oh, well, I do know about HIV AIDS, but I haven't really like dug deep into it. So anyway, to cut the long story short, Together, we were able to, while I was in Malaysia, I actually mobilized students and then we did a fundraiser for children orphaned by AIDS back then in Swaziland, now Eswatini. So we did that. And for me, the night of the fundraiser, being able to pull some key people as a foreign student in a foreign country, mm. but with the support of my lecturer, just reinforced to me that this is something I should be doing for the rest of my life. Wow. So when I left my, when I finished my master's, mind you, was in communications and PR. I told myself, I think the next thing to do is to find some, find a space in the development world and pour myself and my heart into it. And at that time, AHF, AIDS Healthcare Foundation, had an opening in Nigeria, my home country. And they were looking for an advocacy and marketing manager, somebody who had either a degree in law or a degree in public relations and communication. Oh, and you had both. And I had both of them. Oh my <laughs> goodness. Yes, and I had both of them. So uh, when I applied for the job and went for the interview, I think for me, I, I tend to lead with passion because mm -hmm. I'm passionate about what I do. I would not go on a course if I don't feel strongly about it. And I got that job. And that was how my journey into the full world of development began. This is 10 years and counting ago. So, and, and yeah, and ever since then, I've, I've stayed the course. I, I started AHF at the country level and then got elevated to the regional, what we call the bureau level. So the Africa bureau level, which is where I sit now from that. So that's it. But I, I would say that having a combination of law, communications, PR, and then, yeah, the bit about the master's in education, gender, and international development, mm. that happened about two years ago, two, three mm. years ago, 2020, I did apply for the UK Achievement Scholarship, which is one of the most prestigious scholarships in the world, especially for leaders 
Right. And I got selected. I, I was among the 44 of us who were selected from Nigeria out of a total application of about 8,000. That's wow. from Nigeria alone. Um, but globally, Chivning pulls in about almost over 20,000 applications globally. Oh, my goodness. And then just about a thousand of a few lucky people get right. into the program. So. Nigeria had one of the highest applications, but only 44 of us, if I'm not mistaken, at the time were selected. And one of the things I had applied to Chivning to study was education, gender, international development. And the reason was simple. I had been in the HIV AIDS field. I had seen mm. how HIV affected young women and girls particularly. And I wanted to have more insight on how to address not the symptoms, but the underlying drivers for HIV for this demographic. So I knew I needed the tools in terms of education, given how important education is when it comes to you know, issues around health. It, it, there are a lot of intersecting issues. Education is one of them. But also understanding you know, how gender plays a role, whether it's gender inequalities, gender power dynamics, gender stereotypes, gender norms, all of it, understanding how that could affect young women and girls' abilities to, to thrive or to live out their full potential. And of course, when you put that with development, understanding just how you know HIV can be addressed from a development standpoint for this demographic. When I tell people that I applied to do a master's in education, gender, and international development, it's always a mouthful. <laughs> but for me, it was a dream. It was a dream course put into one because it had everything I wanted for the wow. rest of my life in terms of dedicating my time to in one. So I did that at the University College London in the UK for one year. So and that's that's how I got to where I am. Brilliant. That's amazing, Kemi. I feel like you've had such an inspirational journey to get to where you are. So very, very motivational. I know that AHF is one of the biggest, largest independent providers of HIV and AIDS services in the world. So maybe if you could provide us kind of a brief overview of what exactly AHF does and your role more specifically as the Director of Advocacy, Policy and Marketing at the African Bureau. Sure, Bindra. So AHF, like you rightly pointed out, is the largest provider of HIV medical care in the world. And it started in 1987. So we're fast pushing our 40th year. Its headquarters is in Los Angeles in the United States. And it is a global nonprofit organization that is committed to providing cutting edge medicine and advocacy, regardless of their ability to pay to millions of people in need. Currently, AHF is in 45 countries around the world, and, and that's across Africa, Asia, Europe, Latin America and the Caribbean, and of course, the Americas. And we serve over 1.7 million people living with HIV. So AHF provides um, quality care, quality HIV care uh, and services to, to over 1.7 million people and counting. The interesting thing about AHF is that it started as a network of hospices. Hmm. Back then, you know, with a clear um, commitment, and that was to fight for the living and care for the dying. This was the time when AIDS wow. was ravaging communities and there were no access to treatment. People were left to die on the streets and AHF stepped in to say, you know what? We have to make sure that people die with dignity, even mm. if there's no access to treatment, but we also have to fight for those who are living. 
And from that, it expanded and turned hospices into healthcare centers. So we have healthcare centers around the world, you know, where people get to access free HIV um, treatments and services. But another thing with the AIDS Healthcare Foundation is that under the visionary leadership of our president, um, Mr. Michael Weinstein, AHF is known to come up with new and innovative approaches to treating and addressing barriers in order to ensure that those we serve can get the care that they need. And some of these approaches include a network of pharmacies that we have across the U.S., street stores, health and wellness centers, as well as um, affordable housing and food services, what we call the food for health, because we've been able as an organization to make the connection between HIV and housing, HIV and food, and just also addressing issues, public health threats or public health issues that have the ability to impact mm. infection rates. Uh, and the goal for us, the clear vision is to, you know, it's a quest for global AIDS control. So we continue to come up with innovative approaches to be able to address that. And these are just some of the ways that AHF is, is able to do that. When you talk about the Africa Bureau, so the Africa Bureau was where AHF started its first global program over 20 years ago. And, and we started in South Africa, Uganda, and we've expanded to 13 countries on the continent from where we support with HIV treatment care, support prevention and advocacy. The Africa Bureau is actually the largest in terms of program size, the number of people that we reach and the number of people that we care for. When you look at all of AHF's bureaus, like I mentioned earlier, my role really is I lead advocacy, policy and marketing under the leadership of the Africa Bureau Chief, uh, but working very closely with the Chief of Global Advocacy and Policy and her team, as well as the Bureau teams, a dedicated set of teams at the Bureau level and country level. And basically what I do is to provide strategic direction, you know, coordination when it comes to um, driving change through targeted advocacy approaches, influencing policy shifts, at different levels, but at national level, regional level, and um, at even local level, so like the district level, or even where you have like the communities. And a number of, of initiatives that we focus on or issues that we address are basically around access to treatment, uh, making sure that advocating for people to have access to life-saving treatment, HIV financing and funding, or health financing as it were, um, addressing issues of stigma and discrimination, um, tackling, um, focusing on young people and issues that predispose them to HIV infections, especially young women and girls. So issues such as sexual reproductive health, comprehensive sexuality education, access to sanitary pads. Um, we also address issues around vaccine access. And during mm -hmm. the COVID-19 pandemic, AHF was one of the key, if not the loudest champions around access to vaccines, especially for low and middle income countries. We know that continents like Africa were like, the last to receive vaccines. And AHF, through its Vaccinate Our World campaign, made sure to put at the focus and at the center of, of, um, of response the need to address the inequities that make it difficult for um, countries or lower middle income countries or developing countries to be able to access vaccines or even locally manufacture their own vaccines, diagnostics and therapeutics. So. That's also another area of advocacy that we consistently tackle on the need for there to be more equity when it comes to the global health governance structure and system. 
that we, which is built on mutual cooperation and transparency and respect and not, you know, Africa or the rest of the world, depending mm. on the bigger and the richer countries or the richer countries mm. to dictate how responses should be. Other things we, we've been focusing when it comes to advocacy is also on the issue of health equity, like I talked about, um, pandemic preparedness, and also global health security, as well as other initiatives and priorities that AHF every year puts its attention on. Yeah. Mm. Now, Kemi, it would seem like we're behind our global targets for reducing the number of new HIV infections occurring. And I say that because much like when I, you know, I entered the field of public health, learned more that tuberculosis, for example, is not some ancient disease that has kind of gone away and we don't have to worry about anymore. We very much struggle with controlling HIV AIDS. Now, it impacts several continents, and we know that for a fact. But could you provide us with a snapshot specifically on how this epidemic is impacting the sub-Saharan African region? Yes, you, you are right when you, Gordon, when you talk about TB, because even for us as an organization, TB is a major focus right mm-hmm. now in terms of advocacy and programming, because it's one of the diseases that for a long time has been left behind. It's oftentimes neglected and a lot of focus is placed on other things but yet it, it does kill a lot more people yeah. every year and, and there shouldn't be a reason why people should be dying of TB or shouldn't be ac- accessing the treatment or the care or even for us to be able to collectively prevent TB. When it comes to HIV, yes, it's been more than two decades now since the world started grappling with HIV and formulating responses around it. And then continents like Sub-Saharan Africa, yes, has, has been disproportionately affected mm-hmm. over time. And the burden is also very high in Sub-Saharan Africa. I'll just give you a bit of statistics, just to paint a picture of what it looks like. As of 2021-2022, the UNAIDS reports or scorecard on how we're doing globally when it comes to HIV response puts about 39 million people living with HIV around the world. And out of those 39 million, about 67% are mm. in Sub-Saharan Africa. So Sub-Saharan Africa has the highest burden when it comes to HIV. And in that, about 600,000 of the 1.5 million new infections in 2021 were, from, were actually from Sub-Saharan Africa. Mm. And key populations in Sub-Saharan Africa accounted for about 51% of new infections. So we also have issues around treatment gaps, especially even for children. So we, we see that, you know, as a 2021, every five minutes, a child dies of AIDS-related causes. And only half of the children who are living with HIV are on antiretroviral. Now, when we look a bit also in 2022, we see that, again, the epidemic is gendered. So more women and girls, you know, tend to have higher, higher new infection rates. So as at the 2022 report, we saw that 63% of all new infections were among women and girls of all ages. And when we bring that down to young women and girls, we see that we record about 4,000 new infections among those aged 15 to 24 years every week, and 3,100 of those are from Sub-Saharan Africa. When we look at the men, we see that treatment gaps are actually wider amongst men 
than they are amongst women. So you have more women seeking treatment and you have men not poor health seeking behaviors or, hmm. you know, men actually coming out to, to get treated. That's men who are living with type. But then again, it's also the same when I talked earlier about key populations as well, even on the continent you do in sub-Saharan Africa, you also do have high infection rates amongst that group, but it's not all gloom mm -hmm. and, you know, okay, good. <laughs> and sadness. There are some good gains that sub-Saharan Africa has made over time. I, I would say globally, we've made some progress, you know, but um, when we bring it home to sub-Saharan Africa, we've, we've recorded some gains, for example, there's more expanded access to life-saving treatments than there's ever been before. We have more people accessing treatments. The treatment coverage is expanding in a number of places. We even have a few countries like Eswatini, Rwanda, Zimbabwe. So these three countries, AHF also has a presence in these three countries and supports government efforts and partner efforts to bring HIV AIDS services closer to people as well as prevention. But these three countries, in addition to Botswana, have been recorded to reach the 95, 95, 95 targets. Mm -hmm. And we still have about eight more countries that are approaching the targets. And the 1995, the 95, 95, 95 targets basically is in terms of 95% of the people living with HIV know their status. 95% mm -hmm. of those who know their status and are living with HIV are on treatment. So antiretroviral treatment and 95% of those on treatment have reached viral suppression. So it's such remarkable gains coming from um, these countries on the continent. But we've also seen a decline in new infections amongst young people, amongst children, mm -hmm. even amongst young women and girls. Even if, yes, the reality is that there's still a lot to be done, but we cannot lose sight of the fact that there are actually some gains that are worth commending. So there is progress, but we know that, again, for us to be able to get to a point where we can successfully say that we have controlled or we have AIDS or HIV under control, then there's still a lot of issues about that. That's a good segue because I didn't really pick up on that until you said it in that there's different challenges for different genders, though we're focused primarily on, on women and girls. You mentioned the treatment gap for boys and men are a little bit wider because differences in, in help-seeking behavior, but yet there's a disparity with the new infection rates disproportionately impacting yeah. young women and girls. So could you unpack sort of the drivers or the sociocultural factors that play a role in why those discrepancies exist? Yes. Um, so a number of factors actually contribute to the infection rates that we see mm -hmm. or even the AIDS, AIDS death that we see. Number one, stigma. There still exists stigma and discrimination, even within healthcare settings. You still have stigma and discrimination even in communities. And then also social and structural barriers that exist. There are still punitive and discriminatory laws and policies that exist in a number of the countries in sub-Saharan Africa that either criminalize HIV or criminalize sex work or criminalize same-sex relationships. And um, the challenge with that is when you have punitive and discriminative laws or policies, it does have implications for access to even testing, access to treatment, access to information, because people become afraid to reach out to get the needed care or to get the support that they require. So what happens is that then transmission, of course, continues to increase because people are not getting that. 
but then they are also intersecting and gender inequalities as well. So um, like harmful norms and practices that, that predispose either women or girls. So issues such as child marriage or early marriage, issues such as um, even gender-based violence. A lot of these are deeply rooted in culture, low status of women in a number of places and girls. We also have challenges around some practices, even things like female gender mutilation. These are all things that predispose young women and girls. And when we talk about gender-based violence, there's also the correlation that women who suffer intimate partner violence you know, are at a higher risk of getting infected with HIV. So you have issues around gender-based violence as well, driving some of these numbers, but then funding gaps. So we've seen a dwindling, a decline in funding when it comes to HIV. And of course, when there's not enough resources for the response, then challenges exist in terms of making sure that those who need the services or, it, or were able to take the services closer to the people who need it. There's also in a number of quarters, like the low political will, especially from governments to want to tackle HIV. But we've seen, yes, in countries, some of the countries I mentioned, we see a number of strong political will in some of those countries, but we still have issues of low political will in, in some places. And then lack of targeted and adequate prevention services, especially for marginalized and key populations. You know? And like when we talk about young women and girls, part of what we're still tackling now is access to sexual reproductive health services for young women and girls. Um, in some places, policies around comprehensive sexuality education are frowned at mm. or whittled down uh, because the focus is rather more on just promoting only abstinence and not look at other approaches that can help young women and girls empower themselves. But even issues of lack of access to education, there are correlations to the fact that when girls are not in school, the vulnerability to HIV increases. But if we can get girls in school for at least 12 years of quality education, it helps to decline teenage pregnancies. It helps to reduce HIV because, again, to some extent, schools serve as some protective measure in terms mm -hmm. of making sure that girls get information girls stay focused on school in schooling. Let's not also forget that there are issues with gender power. So a lot of women and young women and girls who do not have the capacity or maybe are not educated or do not have the required support are not able to negotiate safer sex or condom use. And even when we talk about things like sanitary pads, menstrual health does also, there is a correlation with that and HIV infection amongst young women and girls because We've seen studies that tell us that when girls are not able to access sanitary pads, what happens is that they try to get them either through transactional sex. And in those situations, they're not able to negotiate because they do mm -hmm. not have the power in that instance. You're at the mercy of the person you're looking for resources for to get sanitary pads. Right. So it, there are a lot of connections between issues like menstrual health. And even when we talk about biomedical prevention approaches, because even with access to PrEP, we now have vaginal rings that can help reduce infection rates. But yet, it's not widely available, readily available to many who need it. So even investing in things like condoms, mm -hmm. we, we still see that is not, there's still challenges in quarters in terms of accessing prevention tools uh, that, you know, not just women, but girls can protect themselves. And even for men who do not go to seek treatment. It also has its roots in gender because mm. 
the feeling is that as a man, you shouldn't be sick. Mm -hmm. You have to be strong. Sometimes the perception at cultural level is that if you go to seek treatment, it means you're weak. But we should be able to change some of those. But it's also the fact that some of our health facilities also do not have youth-friendly centers. So if we talk about young people or youth-friendly corners or safe, safe spaces or even equipping the healthcare workers to the degree that they're able to engage different groups and ensure that they provide them services without judgment or bias or prejudice, that's also still a challenge. So these are some of the things that contribute to driving the epidemic on the continent, especially among different groups that we see. Thanks for that, Kemi. I feel like there's definitely a lot of intersecting factors um, when it comes to what's driving these increased rates. We're actually going to shift gears a bit now. I know Gordon said at the beginning that we're going to be throwing a little rapid fire at you. So it's time for that section. Welcome to our little rapid fire section called Insight Blitz. Are you ready, Kemi? Let's begin. Yes, I am. <laughs> okay, so starting off, favorite thing to do in your spare time? I like to sleep because I don't get a lot of sleep. That's great. <laughs> or read a book. <laughs> but sleep, sleep will be number one. <laughs> favorite food? Rice is my favorite food. Worst piece of advice you've ever gotten? Women are not supposed to aspire for more. Yeah, that's bad. <laughs> really bad. <laughs> Something that keeps you inspired professionally. Right, mentors. I have I have remarkable mentors, but also the fact that the job is not done. There's still a lot to do. I mean, clearly, when you're pursuing more education, even though you have so much already. Yes, the job is not done. A movie, book, or article that you recommend, which has helped you professionally. I'll say, interestingly, I'll say Shoe Dog by Phil Knight. Oh. There's a lot of nuggets in that about it's the making of Nike, but mm -hmm. there's just so much in there. It's weird, I know, as a development person. But yeah, it's, there's a lot in that book. You just mm. can't get over it. Did you see the, the movie? The no, I haven't seen no. the movie. But I, I, it's, it's just good. a book that's been... So it was so profound. I think it's because I, I I like the story behind creating big things out of nothing or little mm. things. So. <laughs> Gonna put that next on my reading list. <laughs> yeah, I wrote it down. <laughs> Favorite way to stay up to date with public health news? Social media. It's always my go-to. I also follow a number of podcasts, but also a number of um, journals online in terms of magazine health reports yeah nice most important trait of a humanitarian most important trait i'd say empathy you have to be able to put yourself in the other person's shoe to really understand you know yeah, empathy for me 100 percent. and last one if you could make one change in public health or global health what would it be Okay, so one is so small. <laughs> yes, one change would be that girls go to school because mm. education connects to a lot for their health. Like, 
yeah, we need to invest more in girls' education, not just as education, but because it does have the potential to unlock a lot more and change a lot more when it comes to some of the practices that hold girls behind. So, yes, I know you say health, but education also plays a very strong role when, we, when it comes to health, improving girls' health and the outcomes. For sure. Yes, definitely one of the biggest factors. And that brings us to the end of our Insight Bliss segment. Thank you for listening to the Public Health Insight Podcast, your go-to space for informative conversations, inspiring community action. If you enjoy our podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. See you in the next one.